When American soldiers walked into the city of Hiroshima weeks after the atomic blast had leveled the city to rubble, to their surprise, they discovered in the belly of a bank an American vault that was built by the Mossler Safe and Lock Company, Hamilton, Ohio. The bank that surrounded it was completely destroyed, but the vault was still there intact. This discovery made headlines in several newspapers back in the United States. Sensing a great marketing opportunity, the company decided to capitalize on this by creating a now famous advertising poster. On the front of the poster is a Mossler safe with the words fireproof and burglar proof. And in the background of the poster, you can see the towering mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb as the fireball incinerated 350,000 people. How utterly distasteful. But this image of of an impenetrable safe, which cannot be breached, no matter the, the forces that come against it, is sadly the picture we've seen throughout the book of Malachi of the people of his day. A people who, come hell or high water, will not admit that they are the ones in the wrong. A people who argue repeatedly with God and fight against God, tooth and nail to the bitter end, always protesting their innocence and always assuming God's complacency. And that's the picture we have today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. As Shelton said, our final installment in the sermon series this summer, studying through the book of Malachi. We'll head on to happier books of the Bible next. We'll travel to the Gospel of Luke. But today, I'm going to read Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, and continue through the remainder of the book. This is the sixth and final debate argument between them and God. You have spoken arrogantly against me says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said that it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his commandments, his requirements, and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. But then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming, uh, which he references here, the day of the Lord, the future day of judgment. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, 
The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you, you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Which we see this often. There's a, on the final judgment day, there's a predicted role reversal where the helpless and those who have been downtrodden and trampled upon by the wicked and the strong are finally vindicated on that day. And, and they are put in the place of honor and power and strength, as it says. Final words, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Mount Sinai, or at Horeb, for all Israel. Then five, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. The prophet Elijah, whom Jesus um, identifies as John the Baptist. Elijah will come to you before that great and dreadful day, uh, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And the first fulfillment of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, was in AD, AD 70 with the fall and destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Elijah, verse 6, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, literally the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Brothers and sisters, the tragic irony is that some people will stand up and resist God to the very bitter end. We will come to the very final day of human history as we know it. To this day he references here as the the day of the Lord. And I guarantee you, you will find a large number of people who will complain that it was all God's fault. God didn't make his existence obvious enough or didn't make his commands clear enough. But as I said in the opening, they, they will be like... Cold steel safes, impenetrable, protesting their innocence to the very bitter end. Ted Tripp, one of the popular Christian counselors and best-selling authors of our day, says that one of the things that has impressed him over and over again during his ministry is how self-deluded people can be and how amazingly difficult... It can be for us to see ourselves with any sort of accuracy at all. He goes on. We see other people with a fair degree of accuracy, but we don't seem to see ourselves with the same precision. And he gives a few instances that he's experienced, and I think you you can relate to many of these. I've been yelled at by angry people who angrily defended themselves when I suggested that they struggled with anger. I've had controlling people take over a conversation so that they could persuade me how serving they were. I've listened to someone boldly proclaim that one of their spiritual strengths was humility. (laughs) I've watched as vengeful people lived unaware of their constant desire to settle the score with others. I pastored many men full, full of the cancer of lust, who told me that sex wasn't a big struggle for them. I've sat with many bitter and retaliatory wives who provided me with a long list of ways that they thought they were loving their husbands. 
I've spoken to gymnasiums full of teenagers who said they respected their elders, but actually lived as if they were the wisest ones in the room. Why are people so self-deluded? Several reasons. First, uh, you can always find somebody just a little bit worse off than you are. And when we compare ourselves to others, you can always find somebody just a little bit more angry or discontent. So the bar of comparison, as opposed to comparing ourselves to God's standards, we compare ourselves to each other, and the bar is set very low. Second, overlooking our wrongs is a natural form of self-preservation, perhaps the most natural form of self-preservation. When we are confronted by another person about our faults, and let's be honest, we are not confronted very much in this life because it's not polite. But when we are confronted, we just can't face it, either because we are too insecure internally or emotionally frail. As Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. And he's right, because it's too debilitating for most of us. And we can always find a reason to dismiss the one who is confronting us, either be it because of the faulty way that they confronted us or the faults of their, uh, the personal faults of the confronter themselves. But the third, and, and certainly the most important reason that we're so self-deluded is because sin always blinds. It always blinds the person who is sinning the sin. Physically blind people know that they are blind, and as a result, you know, they walk around with a cane. They have a seeing eye dog. They arrange their house in such a way that there aren't short tables in the middle of the living room. But spiritually blind people know nothing of the sort and are quite convinced that they see very well, all because of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin obscures, it hides, it wears masks, it bends its shape into more acceptable forms, It points fingers of blame and questions the goodness of God, much like the people in Malachi's day and much like us. Sin locks us up in, in an impenetrable bank vault. But look with me in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in the Lord's presence concerning Those who feared the Lord and honored his name. A scroll of remembrance. That was a technical term in Malachi's day. Very common among the ancients. They would create a catalog of historically significant people and events which the nation decided were never to be forgotten. You know, every nation needs to remember its heroes and heroines. Every nation needs to know which family names ought to be honored because of their ancestors. Every nation, officially or unofficially, has a scroll of remembrance. Well, here Malachi talks about a scroll of remembrance that God writes. And notice, who gets their names written in God's own book? Who are the heroes and the heroines of the history? It is those who fear God and esteem his name. He goes on in verse 17, that on the day when I act, they will be my treasured possession. Even though they rarely feel that way in this life, they will be my treasured possession. 
And he goes on, I will spare them as a, as, as a father has compassion and spares the son who serves him. And you will again, these are hard words, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is the day it'll, this is the way it will happen. Um, happen. This is the way it will be at the end of the world, Jesus Christ said. The angels of God will come and they will separate the wicked from the righteous, or as Jesus describes it, the wheat from the tares, the good harvest producing crop and the, the sticky thistles. Matthew 13, verse 30. In this life, Jesus goes on, the wheat and the tares grow up side by side. But on the day of harvest, on that day, he says, I will say to the reapers, i.e. the angels, first gather together the tares and bind up the tares into bundles in order to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Do you remember the passage in the Fellowship of the Rings? when Gandalf is trying to get Bilbo to leave the, the one ring, the ring of power, behind. Gandalf confronts him. He, he, Bilbo has fallen under the spell of the ring, and Gandalf is worried, rightly so, that the ring is going to turn Bilbo into a golem, really. He's afraid of what the ring would do to his beloved friend. So he says, leave it behind, to which Bilbo replies, Well, if you want my ring yourself, then say so. But you won't get it. I won't give my precious away. I tell you, I will not give it away. His tiny hand strayed to the hilt of his small sword. And at this moment, Gandalf's eyes flashed. It will be my turn to get angry very soon, he said. If you say that again, I shall. Then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. And he took a step towards the hobbit. And he seemed to grow tall and menacing as his shadow filled the little room. Bilbo is stunned. He trembles. He backs away. I don't know what has come over you, Gandalf. You have never been like this before. What is it all about? It's mine, isn't it? I found it. And Gollum would have killed me if I hadn't kept it. I'm not a thief. And I am not one either, replied Gandalf. I am not trying to rob you, but to help you. I wish you would trust me as you used to do. And I think of that passage when we come here to the day of the Lord in chapter 4, verse 1. That surely the day is coming that it will burn like a furnace. That's the language of hell. All the arrogance and every evildoer will be as stubble in the fire and And that day is coming that will set them ablaze, not a root or a branch. Nothing will be left. As I said earlier, the the first fulfillment of the day of the Lord was the ransacking and burning and complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But ultimately, and this is what Christians have confessed for the last 2,000 years, ultimately, the day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus Christ when people then will receive their eternal fate, either reward in God's presence for all eternity, or punishment in God's hell, which is 
described as the place of fire. Now, uh, it's, it's hard for me to say that, but, but the Bible declares that the day of the Lord is absolutely necessary in order to purify this world from, from all of its evil, to cleanse the world from its defilements. The day of the Lord is needed to right the wrongs that have been committed and have never never been reconciled, and to restore the oppressed who's been downtrodden. And on this day, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either to their praise or to their doom, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is God so emphatic about this? Why does God, like Gandalf, rise menacing and tall? Why does God's shadow encompass the room because one day people will see Gandalf the Great uncloaked. The reason that God is so emphatic about this throughout Scripture and particularly here in the book of Malachi is that this will happen. This is no fairy tale or fiction. We are under, as Tolkien would say, the deluding power of the ring, the power of sin, and there will be a final judgment on sin which will determine eternity. I, I know that some in our church believe that this world that we live in is approximately 6,000 years old, give or take a, a few hundred years. And I know that there are others in our church who believe that this world is roughly 4.6 billion years old. That's quite a span, right? <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, there's plenty of room for disagreement. It's one of those intramural debates among brothers and sisters, it's not a question of orthodoxy if you're old earth or young earth. But let's say, for argument's sake, let's assume the earth is very old. I happen to hold to the old earth position. Let's try to wrap our minds around this. If 4.6 billion years were to be scaled down to the distance between home plate and first base... 90 feet, your life and my life is about one one-thousandth one one thousandth of an inch in, long, which is, of course, impossible to see with the naked eye. Well, let's expand it a little further. If 4.6 billion years was scaled to the length of a football field, then my life is a little less than four one-hundred-thousandths of an inch, if you take your bulletin and look at this piece of paper, it is about four one-thousandths of an inch thick. So your life and my life is a hundred times thinner than a piece of paper on a football field. Now, there's two conclusions we ought to reach about this. Number one, I guess my life, I guess this, this world and this life is not all about me. <laughs> I mean, surely I am incredibly insignificant, though I don't live that way. I am the center of my own universe. But secondly, and more importantly, my life is just a drop in the bucket. This life, this world is just a drop in the bucket in comparison to eternity. We get so preoccupied with the present that we forget to anticipate the eternal, the eternal, eternity, forever and ever, what, it is nowhere to be found in our minds. And if we really are under a power or spell that deludes us, 
And that's using us for its own dark and sinister purposes. And if we really have been created with souls, an innermost part of us that is intended to last forever, and if there really is a heaven and hell, which makes four point billion years seem like the blink of an eye, doesn't that just make you exhale or inhale and your, your heart just skip a beat? We say so many vacuous things, particularly at funerals, in order maybe just to escape this. We'll say things like, well, we know they're in a better place now. No. It takes more than your death to go to a better place. It takes the death of Jesus Christ in your place to go to a better place. I realize that these, this is a massive topic. Heaven, eternal heaven, eternal hell, and so much can be said that I won't touch on. But the one brief, brief thing I can say, I can say to you upon the testimony of 2,000 years of Christian history, and I can say to this to you the testimony of Scripture, is that these things are real. They're really real. It's, you go back to the old adage of uh, which student should fear the final exams at the end of the semester? Which student should be afraid of, of the final exams? And the answer is those who didn't fear already. Those who didn't fear already. Those who blew it off and didn't study those who never gave the final exams a second thought until they walked into the room and started filling in the bubble sheet. And I don't want you to be that person. I don't want on my watch as a pastor, uh, I don't want it to be said that I never warned you, that I never grew sharp and a little bit menacing in my words from this pulpit. Because I want, and truly we all want better things for every single person in this room. And that's what's promised in verse 2. Look with me in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. The Son of Righteousness. Okay, can you remember what hymn, what Christmas carol that's from? Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald, the Angels Sing, Hail hail the Heaven-born Prince of Peace, Hail the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. Mildly lays, I think I've got it backwards. Mildly lays his glory by. The Son of Righteousness will arise, and you will go out, it continues, and frolic like well-fed calves. Literally, the Hebrew says, you will go out um, like calves released from the stall. Those of us who grew up in the city, city slickers, and know nothing about agricultural metaphors, what I'd recommend is that you search later online today. Type in leaping like calves, or calves from the stall, I think is new calf from the stall. And one of the hits you'll have will take you to a video that was uploaded on Facebook by the Handsome Brook Farm in Franklin, New York. It is a video of a calf named Sheldon capturing the first moment when he heads out of the stall into the pasture for the very first time of his little cow life. And I find it interesting that the picture of the day of uh, the Lord that is for Christians on that great and final day, the picture is not of cheetahs bursting out across the prairie or of ponies prancing in the middle of the circus ring. It's this picture of an awkward, gangly, but exuberant (laughs) calf as it bounces and kicks and sees green and and brightness and freedom for the very first time. 
I want to finish, though, with this metaphor of the son of righteousness. And you know that the Bible goes into great detail about, it expands a great deal on light and dark. God creates, at the very beginning, light out of the darkness. And you remember how the Bible ends at the very end. It ends with no more darkness at all. There's total and complete light that is created by the glory of God's almighty presence. But interestingly, you know that the Hebrew calendar, um, the sun, the day begins when? The day actually begins as the sun goes down. In the Hebrew reckoning of the day, the, the first half of the day is in the darkness. The, the sun of righteousness doesn't actually rise until when? Until the middle of the day. And that, of course, is what happens with the birth of Jesus Christ. It happens in the middle of the day, in the middle of history, in the middle of the story, in the middle of the Bible. It happens right at the end, 400 years after the end of the book of Malachi. I don't want to say anything bad about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, because the Old Covenant was good. But I think we could agree that the Old Covenant was also dark. Going back to the Hebrew calendar again, the the Hebrew calendar wasn't a solar-based calendar. It was a lunar calendar. It was a calendar that was, their, their whole festival life was governed by the dark. You think about all of the worship that took place in the tabernacle and the temple, how most of the symbolic and ritual activities of the greatest importance were in places behind the veil, behind the curtain. But in, in, the, in the dark, the menorah was in the most holy place. But you know what was the, the holiest place in the, the temple? There was no light fixture at all. It was the Ark of the Covenant was entirely in the dark. And many of the symbolic actions, images of the Old Testament, we say, were shadows pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. So the, the story starts in the dark. And then in the middle of the story, verse 2, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Uh, If you think of one of those times when you're watching a storm come through Boise, and they're just scattered clouds out. The sun's rays will clip one of the edges of a cloud, and you can see the ray all the way down to the earth's surface. Those are the wings of the Son of Righteousness. The, wing, the, the rays are that which come and envelop the earth. What an image. For the, uh, what a picture to describe to us the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the God who is revealed as the man, Jesus of Nazareth. A helpless child being nursed in his mother's arms in a guest room in Bethlehem. A young boy growing in strength and wisdom in rural Galilee. An angry prophet denouncing the injustices of the day in the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. And a tortured human figure crucified under the dark clouds of Golgotha. Martin Luther said it best. No other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. Popular Christian author spent the first seven years of his ministerial career serving as a chaplain 
at a college chaplain at Worcester College in Oxford. And at the beginning of every fall term, it was his responsibility to meet and greet the new undergraduates who came, who came in. To, nice to meet you. Uh, I'm the, the college chaplain. Here are the chapel times. Can't wait to see you there throughout the course of the year. He said, you know, most of the students were quite welcome to make my acquaintance. But he said, some of them, actually quite a few, in fact, would, would demur, it's nice to meet you, but <laughs> you're never going to see me in chapel this year. I don't believe in God. Oh, I see. Well, that's interesting. Well, would you mind telling me, please, which God is it that you don't believe in? Well, this was surprising to them because they, they had never been asked that question. They thought of the word God as just in its univocal sense. So they would stumble out a few phrases about a being who lived up in the sky, looking down disapprovingly on the world, occasionally intervening to do miracles, seeing bad pe- sending bad people to hell while allowing good people to share his heaven. To which his standard reply was, I'm not surprised that you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. We do too. This God is a menacing figure. He's menacing and tall. Nobody in the Bible, nobody in the Bible speaks more about hell than Jesus Christ. But you have to understand it. That's the indignation of love. And who could be more loving than our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured hell for our sake? What, Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Do not argue back with him. Fight tooth and nail to the very last. Do not grow cold and lock your heart away in an impenetrable safe, but allow him to rebuke you. Allow him to lead you to repentance and receive the news, the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Almighty King. All praises be to his name. Amen.